This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI Audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Lloyd Robertson. There are currently no enforceable regulations applying to drinking water in First Nations communities. Why hasn't the federal government been able to solve the First Nations water crisis? John Devinish reads In Deep by Hilary Beaumont. Hilary Beaumont is a freelance journalist based in Toronto. She has been reporting on the First Nations water crisis since 2015. I'm John Devinish. This is an article titled In Deep by Hilary Beaumont from the January-February issue of The Walrus. I really like the water from the tap, says Walter Oskanigish, over the phone from Thunder Bay. It's easier than getting water from the lake. He notices this because it's so different from what he grew up with or has at home. Oskanigish, 47, is band manager of Nabinimic, an OG Cree First Nation in northern Ontario, accessible by plane, and in winter, an ice road. Flying over, the landscape looks shot through with tiger stripes, lakes and rivers created thousands of years ago by receding glaciers. Every week, whether it's sunny or raining or snowing, Oskanigish has to collect water for his family. He sets out in a boat, either a canoe or an aluminum dinghy with a motor, and stops in the middle of Nabinimic Lake, filling as many as four 20-liter jugs with water for the six family members in his household. They drink it, cook with it, and bathe in it. And because that quantity of water doesn't last long, they reuse it for cleaning up, too. When the lake freezes in the winter... He drives a snowmobile out and drills through the ice. The water has an earthy taste, Oskanigish says. It is tinted yellow in summer. In winter, the ice makes the water a bit clearer. No one routinely tests the lake water to ensure it's safe, Oskanigish says. But he adds that it has never made him sick. He trusts the water because there is no mining or industry upstream but he boils it and runs it through a Brita-like filter before using it, to be double sure. You might think Oskanigish and his neighbors have to go through all this because Nabinimic doesn't have any sort of infrastructure to filter and disinfect water. But that's not the case. Nabinimic has had a water treatment plant since 1997. Most Canadians have heard something about the First Nations water crisis the outbreaks of rashes and gastrointestinal ailments, the boil water advisories that go on for years or decades. Far fewer likely realize that much of this is happening in communities that have long had water treatment facilities. Government press releases and ribbon-cutting ceremonies promise relief that often turns out to be short-lived. Over the last 25 years... The Canadian government has spent billions of dollars in attempts to address the problems many First Nations have accessing clean water. Despite these efforts, dozens of communities still cannot drink from their taps. 
The causes are manifold, and the solutions complex and poorly understood, even by the very politicians who promise assistance. And the heart of this crisis is Northern Ontario, the region with the most and the longest-lasting boil water advisories, some dragging on for more than two decades. The first time Oskanegish drank water from the tap was in Thunder Bay when he was in grade nine. Like other children from Nabinamik and surrounding communities, he lived there for high school. When Oskanegish arrived in 1988, he found it scary and unfamiliar. The city had paved roads, concrete everywhere, and the clean water meant he was able to shower regularly. I was sort of confused and puzzled and excited at the same time, he says, seeing that these things existed. Nearly a decade later, in 1997, Dabinamik finished building its very first water treatment plant and wastewater treatment facility, one of several systems built in Northern Ontario First Nations during this period. The water was drawn from the Winnisk River, which flows past the community. It entered an intake pipe, was gravity-fed to a wet well, then traveled through filters and was disinfected with chlorine before collecting in a reservoir from which it could be distributed to homes. The system pumped water to 80 of the 94 log cabins and prefabricated houses in Nabinamik, serving 304 of its 357 residents. These water plants, along with those in many other remote First Nations, were the outcome of a 1977 federal policy committed to expand infrastructure to meet the same health and safety standards that were in place in non-First Nation communities. That commitment kicked off a decades-long saga, one in which promises far outstripped results and which is still ongoing. In 1991, another federal commitment, First Nations water access would be equal to that in Canadian communities in 10 years. And in 1995, a new promise to fix things by 2004, a pledge that came with $1.9 billion in funding over eight years. Dave Craig has nearly 30 years of experience working in water plants and training water operators in Northern Ontario First Nations. He estimates that he has visited dozens of communities during that time. When the Canadian government doled out money to build water treatment facilities in northern Ontario in the mid-1990s, Craig says it would have made sense to build the same type of treatment system in all communities so they could share spare parts and expertise. But in the early days, he noticed that different water treatment technologies were installed in each community. It seemed to him like the government was using the region as a testing ground. According to the Ministry of Indigenous Services, these systems included slow and rapid sand filtration, chemically-assisted conventional filtration, and micro, nano, and ultra-filtration. Craig found that many treatment systems were poorly planned. He recalls a few plants had their drinking water intakes downstream from their sewage treatment facilities. Pilot projects, essentially miniature water plants set up to test various designs, either didn't exist at all or, where they did, were often not run properly, he says, leading to flaws in the fully constructed plants. To this day, Craig says, some First Nations still have rudimentary systems called standpipes, which pump water with minimal treatment, such as only adding chlorine. 
Indigenous Services was unable to share annual assessments of Nabinimic's water plant with the walrus. The records and data they were willing to provide went back only to 2002. Records for other communities can be similarly patchy and inaccessible. On-the-ground workers like Craig are, therefore, often the most reliable sources of information about the situation. Many of these new plants experienced difficulties almost from the beginning. Over the years, Craig says, the government hasn't given communities enough money for maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. And there has been high turnover among the water operators, for reasons including low wages, hiring from outside communities, and unstable funding. This isn't just a staff management problem. If a water plant doesn't have an operator, that's an automatic water advisory for the affected community. Nabinimic's water treatment plant was one of the facilities built during this period, opening in 1997. It had problems soon after. Within a few years, the community had already set a temporary boil water advisory. These are issued whenever there is a known or suspected contamination of the water supply and call for boiling. For at least one minute, any water that will be used for consumption, including drinking, washing fruits and vegetables, and brushing teeth. The Canadian government calls water advisories issued for less than a year short-term, while those lasting a year or more are deemed long-term. A March 2001 on-site inspection by a third party, the Ontario Clean Water Agency, OCWA, tells a frustrating story. Normally, a basic plant like the one in Nabinimic would have a wet well at a lower elevation than the source water, so water could simply flow in. But Nabinimic's water intake line was higher, disrupting service when water levels were low. If the guy has to go and physically pump water into it, there would be some kind of a design flaw, Craig says. Craig has never worked in Nabinimic, but a national assessment 10 years after OCWA's inspection found that a design flaw was indeed to blame for troubles with the community's facility. There were other issues, too. The water plant's backup diesel generator, which was supposed to kick in if there was a power outage, wasn't working. There was no pump available for fire protection, and a leaky hydrant disrupted the flow of water to homes. Neither the raw water nor the treated water met Health Canada's guidelines for drinking water quality. The author of the OCWA report was not able to review data on the water source's biological quality, which refers to bacteria, protozoa, and viruses. The report mentions twice that the agency would have liked to conduct another on-site inspection but was unable to do so. Physically, the treated water had high color, total organic carbon, and turbidity, the report states, referring to its yellowish tint and visible bits of organic matter. Unlike in Thunder Bay or Toronto, the drinking water in many Northern Ontario First Nations does not come from the Great Lakes, where source water generally appears clear. Craig describes the lakes and rivers across northern Ontario as filled with tea water, brown, murky, and loaded with leaves and other organic matter. When water with high organic levels is mixed with chlorine, which is used as a disinfectant in most water treatment plants, including the Minimix, chemical compounds called trihalomethanes, THMs, can form. Experts suspect that THMs are correlated with an increased risk of colorectal cancers. According to Canadian drinking water guidelines, 
The acceptable limit for total THMs is 100 micrograms per liter of water. The 2001 assessment of Nabinovic's water did not include test results for THMs because the relevant vial was broken in transit. In Canada's cities and towns, day-to-day -day responsibility for water quality falls under provincial jurisdiction. On reserves, it is a shared responsibility between First Nations and the federal government. There are currently no enforceable regulations applying to drinking water in First Nations communities. Ontario updated its guidelines for water treatment in the wake of the tragedy that unfolded in Walkerton in 2000, which saw thousands fall ill and seven die from water contamination. Those updated guidelines now state that surface water, the kind of water supply that Nabinovic uses, requires, at minimum, chemically-assisted filtration plus chlorination. Nabinomics facility would not meet these standards, nor is it required to. Indigenous Services conducts annual inspections of water systems on First Nations and, based on its findings, assigns a risk ranking between 0 and 10. Systems at the low end of the scale, rated 4 and under, are considered to have minor deficiencies, and usually meet the water quality parameters. Those deemed medium risk, rated 4.1 to 7, have deficiencies that should be corrected to avoid future problems. Systems that rank above 7 are those with major deficiencies that may, individually or combined, pose a high risk to the quality of water. Wesley Bova, manager of technical services for the Matawa First Nations, which Nabinamik is part of, says he's not a fan of the risk-ranking system. It's a very subjective risk analysis that the government uses. For example, he explains, having a properly certified operator in a very poor plant contributes to a lower risk score, even though that scenario poses basic problems for water safety and could easily trigger a boil water advisory. In 2001, Nabinomix system scored a 7, medium risk, right on the cusp of a high-risk rating. That number foreshadowed a bleak future of drinking water for the community. The 2001 OCWA report made a list of recommendations to address Nabinomix water problems, including investigating the boil water advisory that had been set soon after the plant opened to make sure contamination was addressed, investigating the water intake problem, developing a program to regularly sample the water, and implementing a training program to certify the water operator, who was described in the report as having some training. The federal government had launched the Circuit Rider Training Program in 1996 to essentially provide traveling tech support for water operators on First Nations. Craig was among the very first circuit riders. Between 1995 and 2003, the federal government spent about $1.9 billion to improve water and wastewater infrastructure on First Nations. Despite this investment, a 2003 national assessment found that 218 of the 740 drinking water systems on reserves were high risk, and a 2005 audit found that reserve residents still did not have the same level of water protection as Canadian communities. The latter also emphasized that there were no laws or regulations governing drinking water in First Nations, unlike in other communities. After the 2003 assessment, the federal government promised to address all of the high-risk systems by the end of March 2008, 
approving an additional $600 million over five years under the First Nations Water Management Strategy. Then, in November 2005, under Paul Martin's Liberals, federal, provincial, and territorial governments, as well as five national indigenous groups, met in Kelowna, B.C., to discuss details of the Kelowna Accord, a pledge to close the gap between living standards on First Nations and those of Canadian communities. Under the agreement, which was not legally binding, $1.6 billion would be put toward housing and infrastructure, including $400 million for water facilities. Four days later, Parliament was dissolved. Stephen Harper's Conservatives took power in the election that followed. Under his government, the funding promised in the accord was drastically reduced. Abinimic had to keep setting water advisories throughout this period. One in 2003 was lifted in 2004. Another in 2007 was lifted in 2008. And still another, set in 2009, lasted until 2011. In 2011, what was then called the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development published a national assessment of First Nations water systems. It found the design of Nabinimic's water facility was what had caused it to fail both health and aesthetic water guidelines. It also found that the primary water operator had no certification, despite the previous recommendation that this be addressed. And that the source water was high risk. The facility's overall risk rating was 7.5, placing it in the high-risk category. More advisories followed in 2012. A suspected fuel spill in spring 2012 also led to a five-week-long do-not-consume advisory, which is stricter than a boil-water advisory. Finally, in 2013, the community set a long-term boil-water advisory that endures to this day. Oskanegish became band manager of Nabinimic in 2005. Over the years, he says, he received many complaints about the water from the treatment plant due to what residents describe as excessive chlorination. People still bathe and shower in water from the tap. They have reported rashes and sores to Oskanegish, although it's not clear if these are from the water. Bottled water is available at the community's general store, but quickly sells out, Oskanegish says, leaving no choice but the lake. Before the federal election in 2015, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau promised that, if elected, he would ensure all First Nations experiencing drinking water advisories had clean water within five years. After he became prime minister, that commitment shifted all long-term water advisories in First Nations would end, the federal government said, by March 2021. The 2016 budget included $1.8 billion in funding for First Nations water and wastewater systems, which sounds like a lot until you realize the parliamentary budget officer has since estimated it will take $3.2 billion to eliminate the advisories. In 2018, the federal government kicked in an additional $172 million to be spent over three years. There's no doubt that the Liberals have made some progress. 
When they took office in November 2015, there were 105 long-term water advisories in First Nations. At the beginning of November 2019, there were 57. Though these numbers suggest that the government has cut the problem in half, measured in terms of the number of people affected, it has made a smaller dent. The total number of homes on long-term water advisories has fallen from 5,400 to 3,800, a 30% reduction. And all of these statistics obscure the true number of people who don't have clean water. Many homes in First Nations communities were never hooked up to water lines in the first place. Residents either use private wells, which are untested and do not fall under the government commitment, or they have to walk or drive to the nearest water source to fill jugs. In May 2019, the government committed up to $6 million for the design and construction of upgrades to Nabinimic's water plant. It estimates that the community's water advisory will be lifted by spring 2021, making it one of the last in line. One complication is the difficulty of bringing in equipment and building materials. There is no all-season road, and flying in supplies is prohibitively expensive. The winter road is only available for a few weeks a year, and climate change is now threatening all winter roads that First Nations in the region rely on, making them increasingly unreliable. Other communities have received funding for brand-new water treatment plants, which usually cost about $13 million apiece and up to $20 million for larger facilities. But it also may be the case that political rhetoric on the matter, this talk of advisories ending, is highly misleading. As of October 31st, there were at least 40 short-term drinking water advisories in effect. That number does not include advisories in B.C. and within the Saskatchewan Tribunal Council including many in First Nations that recently came off the long-term advisory list. The government says it has lifted 87 long-term advisories since November 2015, but it has added another 39 long-term advisories in the same period. Isidore Day, a former Ontario Regional Chief from Serpent River First Nation, elicited the clean water commitment from Trudeau in 2015 by challenging him and the other party leaders to commit to fixing the problem within five years. Four years later, he's impressed with Trudeau's progress. I try to avoid partisan politics on the federal side, but I have to commend the Liberal government for the efforts that they've made, Day says. Yes, there's a lot of work to do, but I believe the Liberals deserve a lot of credit for making a good run at this. That's a far cry from thinking the crisis is nearing resolution, though. Day is concerned that no one is talking about long-term operation and maintenance of all the new infrastructure being built. This isn't, in other words, just about constructing the plants themselves. Like any other basic infrastructure, these systems will need ongoing management. Government announcements, however, focus more on triumphant construction projects than on the daily slog of keeping things running. Autumn Peltier, 15, is from Wikwemkung First Nation on Manitoulin Island, the largest freshwater island in the world, in Lake Huron. In late September, she went to New York City to address the United Nations Global Landscapes Forum. She explained that her community is not on a water advisory, 
but she had become an activist when she learned that other First Nations didn't have clean drinking water. I was confused, as Canada is not a third world country, she said. But in my country, the Indigenous people live in third world conditions. Peltier's great aunt, she said, had taught her the sacredness of water. For years and years, our ancestors have passed on oral traditional knowledge that our water is alive and our water has a spirit. When I tweeted a clip of Peltier's speech, Jordan Smith, a volunteer water operator in a tiny BC community, commented that he is a white person who lives in a remote community that is also on a boil water advisory. He raised geographic remoteness and the high cost of building and maintaining infrastructure as factors that limit both Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. He's not alone in citing geography as a limiting factor in building water infrastructure. At a press conference during the federal election last fall, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh promised to ensure there would be no more drinking water advisories in First Nations. Two reporters asked him if he was writing a blank check for this and other Indigenous issues. Singh, who didn't elaborate on what his approach to the problem would be, replied, If Toronto had a drinking water problem, if Montreal had a drinking water problem, would you be asking the same question? Even for First Nations like Nabinamik, whose location is an aggravating factor in attaining clean water, remoteness is not the root cause of the water crisis. Many First Nations located near municipalities are also under long-term advisories. Wuzushk Anigam Nation, to take one example, is 10 minutes from downtown Kenora and is under two separate boil water advisories, one issued in 2012 and the other in 2017. Boil water advisories exist not so much because of distance but as a direct outcome of colonial conquest. Sean Carlton, a historian at Mount Royal University, explains that before colonization began in the 16th century, indigenous peoples controlled all of the land in what we now know as Canada. That formally changed between the 1870s and 1920s, with First Nations leaders signing treaties in exchange for verbal and written promises to share the land and water with Canada. Instead, Surveyors marked prime agricultural land for settler development and set aside small portions of land they didn't want as Indian reserves, removing at the same time First Nations' ability to choose the sources of water that they would have access to in the future and their ability to manage their own watersheds. If a source of pollution upstream from reserve land is contaminating source water, say a First Nation does not have the authority to stop it. First Nations downstream from the Alberta oil sands, for example, have noticed significant negative impacts to their water, fish, and wildlife over the decades. A 2014 report by University of Manitoba researchers quotes one resident who describes the situation there. You go in the rivers and you see all that foam that's coming down and it's all pollution. Another resident wondered if the filters in their water treatment plant were adequate. All the stuff from upstream is coming down, so we are getting everything from Syncrude, all coming down that river, and we drink the water from the lake here. And of course, sure, it goes through a filter, 
and it's going through that filter system. But how good is that filter system that they have there? We don't know those contaminants. This is not a problem that First Nations have the authority to solve for themselves. The legal framework that removed First Nations from their territories, though it has been modified over the years, is still in place. In 1867, the British North America Act placed Indians and lands reserved for the Indians under federal jurisdiction. In 1876, Canada passed the Indian Act, a huge, complicated set of laws that oversees relations with First Nations. The Indian Act gave the federal government control over First Nations resource development and land use and deliberately subverted Indigenous authority to the Canadian government. As set out in the Indian Act, capital and revenue generated from reserve land, known as banned monies, is held by the Canadian government in trust on behalf of First Nations. Every year, the federal government renews contribution agreements with each First Nation, arrangements to provide funding, which must be spent based on agreed-upon conditions. It's not clear how the government decides how to allocate money or how much, Often, communities end up moving money from other funds to continue meeting water service standards. As Day explains, this means an outside government controls First Nations affairs, including their financial resources. Day says this paternalistic structure is the cause of delays and shortages in funding for water infrastructure. He also says the same structure means Canada has a fiduciary responsibility to ensure safe living conditions in First Nations. Nabinamik has decided to build its new water system to meet the standards Ontario developed after Walkerton. It will have a proper intake line and will chemically filter out THMs. Though it is not required to do so, and the $6 million in funding it is receiving may not be enough to cover the costs. In the long run, though, Bova is more concerned that the federal government will not provide enough money to operate and maintain all the new plants being built now throughout their 20-year life cycles. The new plants being installed now are more complex, he says, so they will likely require a lot of money on an ongoing basis. Asked if he believes his community will have clean drinking water by 2021, Oscar Nigish says, I'd like to be that positive guy, and I'd like to see it but I don't think it will happen. To get base federal funding for a water treatment project, a First Nations community must first fund a feasibility study, either on their own or through provincial programs. Once they complete this, they can secure funding for a detailed design study and eventually move on to construction. The entire process can take five to ten years with delays arising from changing seasons and governments. Craig first explained this to me over the phone in 2017, as he was in the middle of trying to fix leaks in another First Nations new water treatment plant. The contractor, in that case, was driving him crazy, he told me, and was later kicked off a different reserve because of delays in building their new plant. If it were a municipality, it would be an uproar, Craig said. There's no way people would stand for it. Craig has since had to step back from some of his work in water treatment, mostly because of his health, but also because of his frustrations with the engineering outfit and contractor that built the plant he was working on when we spoke. 
As in the old days, he says, the pilot project wasn't done properly. It was built in a narrow passage where the water is moving, but the permanent water plant was constructed about four kilometers away, on a dead bay with no water flow, a major difference that could lead to problems in the future. I spoke with Craig again a few days before the federal election. Working inside the system for decades, he says, you feel like such a small pebble on the beach that you can't do anything. It becomes so frustrating. It breaks your heart. He watched the English language election debate, hoping to see the water crisis addressed. But the section on indigenous issues, people were more involved in slinging dirt at the other guy. There were no real answers given. His questions for everyone involved, from First Nations governance to indigenous services to elected leaders and voters. Are we being diligent? Are we doing what we should be doing? Are we doing what's really needed? Or are we just making a show? That was an article titled In Deep by Hilary Beaumont from the January-February issue of The Walrus. I'm John Devonish. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Sam Robinson and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Lloyd Robertson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.